0: This podcast contains violence, adult themes, and material that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised.
1: True North True Crime is produced on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and tsleil nations. For most people, the chance to study in another country is an exciting prospect. The emotional stress of applying for schools, getting your visa papers in order, saving money, and saying goodbye to friends and family are all part of the adventure. But new cities hold new experiences. Maybe a chance to find oneself, to reinvent oneself, to learn new things, to try new foods, to speak a new language. And maybe you'll make some new friends. Maybe with your classmates. Or your local barista. Or maybe... It'll be that nice man... Who strikes up a conversation with you in the library. But who can you trust, really? And what happens if one of those friendships turns deadly? This is the murder of Natsumi Kogawa. And this is True North True Crime.
0: Hello and welcome to Episode 6 of True North True Crime. As usual, we want to start off the episode by thanking you all for tuning in. Please share our podcast with a friend and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TNTCPod. We'd like to thank all of our listeners who signed the petition for Marshall Iwasa e. that we referred to in our previous episode. This means the world to us as we want to help victims as well as their families as much as we can. Your five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts have also been helping with visibility for the podcast, so we thank you for that as well. So, what are we talking about tonight?
1: In this episode, we're going to be talking about the murder of Natsumi Kogawa. Uh, While this case did get a little bit of media attention at first, it feels like it's been widely ignored. And it is a a pretty gruesome murder um, and something that should never happen in Canada, but it did. Or anywhere. Or anywhere, yeah. But it's just one of those cases where it's like, well, why aren't aren't we still talking about this, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, And we want to shed a spotlight on it because this victim still needs a voice. What happened to her is horrific. And should never happen to anyone. And for us, this case literally hit close to home as a major part of the investigation occurred across the street from our downtown Vancouver apartment.
0: Yeah, so like we just said, the story takes place in Vancouver. Vancouver is the largest city on the west coast of Canada. The greater Vancouver area has a population of about 2.5 million people. The population of Vancouver is very diverse, with people from all walks of life. It is actually a pretty great example of what a multicultural city can achieve.
1: And the city itself is pretty stunning. It's a mixture of old and new architecture. It boasts beautiful mountain and ocean views. Overall, it's a pretty great place to be, although it does rain a lot. And I've heard it said that Vancouverites can come across cold, which makes it a tough place to make friends. But Vancouver is not a cheap place to live. Affordability in Vancouver is an issue. After the city hosted the 2010 Winter Olympics, a frenzy of investment occurred, which has pushed home and rental costs to astronomical levels. A one-bedroom apartment in Vancouver now rents for about $2,200 a month and would sell for about $800,000.
0: Yeah, if not a million, honestly. Crime-wise, the city does have its challenges. There is a pretty massive drug trade going through the port system and the streets of downtown Vancouver. Uh, The downtown east side particularly is awash with the urban symptoms of addiction. There is also a lot of property crime. Murders, however, are not very common. While in 2017, the city had 19 murders, that number dropped in 2019 to just nine.
1: Yeah, just nine murders in a city of 2.5 million people.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's not a super violent city. Mm -hmm. Just a lot of property crime
1: so as we said vancouver is a relatively safe and diverse place to live work and study many of those above-mentioned positive lifestyle factors make vancouver and the province of british columbia a popular destination for international students it is estimated that british columbia's post secondary institutions and k-12 schools were home to about one hundred and fifty thousand international students in 2017 and these students come from all around the world over the years, Vancouver has always been a draw for students coming from Japan specifically.
0: Why Japan particularly?
1: Well, I think there's a, actually – Vancouver has a Japantown area, which yeah. is uh, down in the downtown east side actually. And there's always been sort of like a traditional um, relationship with Japan. There's a lot of sister cities in British Columbia with Japanese cities. Mm-hmm. Um and as you know, our, our, our streets in Vancouver are lined with Japanese maples and Japanese cherry blossom trees and that kind of thing. Like, there's always been sort of like this rich relationship between the West Coast of North America and Japan. Mm-hmm. And I think that's been um, uh, overall larger in the last 20, 30 years because of its proximity, too. It's easier yeah. to study in Vancouver than it is to, say, study in like New York. New York, yeah.
0: So, this brings us to Natsumi Kogawa. Natsumi was a 30-year-old Japanese woman who was visiting Vancouver on a student visa. Her intention was to study English and eventually change her visa status to working holiday so she could continue to live and work in Vancouver. Natsumi's plan was to stay in Canada for a year and a half and then return to Japan.
1: Yeah, that's actually really common. What you do is you come in on a student visa for four to six months, and then once you're in Canada, you apply for a working holiday visa. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So that way you can get like... So you've practiced your English for about six months or whatever. Mm -hmm. And usually people are coming with very advanced English anyway. Yeah. And then you want to now put your English into work. So they'll get like sort of part-time jobs and stuff like that. And then they get to stay a little bit and they're not doing. And um, meet
0: people, like the actual people of Canada, not just like their their student cohorts who they, you know.
1: Yeah, who they end up hanging out with or or they'll end up doing trips to Banff and Jasper and trying to sort of explore British Columbia because they've come all that way Mm -hmm. from Japan. and. And generally, once those two visas are worked up, then they move back to Japan and then, you know, they're going to go about their lives and, and, and that. So it's like this is their opportunity to sort of really experience British Columbia and Canada.
0: Yeah. And get some skills and some experiences in life before, you know, they want to settle down. Yeah. So Natsumi was uh, living in a suburb of Vancouver called Burnaby with roommates. Her friends and family describe her as a hardworking, beautiful very positive, bright character with interests in all kinds of things. She was also known to have a great sense of humor.
1: Yeah, if you see photos of Natsumi, uh, and we'll post some on the Instagram, like she just has this very bright, positive vibe to her. She
0: has the best smile. Yeah, Her smile like makes me want to smile. Yeah. While she was studying in Vancouver, she would regularly keep in contact with loved ones back in Japan. However, on Thursday, September 8th, 2016... She failed to return texts and calls. Her friends and family became immediately worried.
1: So on the morning of September 7th, 2016, Natsumi woke up at her boyfriend Jay Vergara's place in East Vancouver. It wasn't unusual for her to spend the night there. Um, Jay then dropped Natsumi off at the the nearest SkyTrain station, which is like uh, the SkyTrain in Vancouver is like the subway. except It's it's, it's
0: a subway that's not underground.
1: It's a subway that's in the sky. Yeah. So although they uh, would text throughout the day until about midnight, this would be the last time that Jay would actually see her alive. So that day, Natsumi attended a calligraphy class and an information session in downtown Vancouver. When she finished at 5.30, she went to the downtown branch of the Vancouver Public Library, where she studied for about an hour before heading home to Burnaby. Around midnight, she exchanged text messages with a friend, David Manus, and she made plans with him to hang out the following day. Manus had met Kogawa in the summer of 2016 through mutual friends. They had arranged to meet on the evening of Thursday, September 8, 2016, which would be the next day. In order to pick up a job application at Miku, a Japanese restaurant in downtown Vancouver, where one of Manis's friends worked as a manager.
0: Just going to cut in here and say if you ever find yourself in Vancouver and want the best sushi of your life, go to Miku.
1: Yeah, it's really popular with celebrities and that's probably a huge draw and, you know, a cool place to work for Natsumi yeah. while she was in Vancouver. So David Manis was going to pick Natsumi up at her North Burnaby homestay on September eighth, two thousand sixteen, at five thirty p.m. And now a homestay is like arranged through um, the, the school. school. Yeah. yeah. So it's you're living with a family, or you're living with people who have an extra room or a couple of extra rooms. So it's it's not it's a roommate situation, but it's also kind of not. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Natsumi actually would later change the time to six thirty p.m. So they were supposed to meet at 6, 5.30, and then she changed it to 6.30. And this is while they were texting the night before that she changed that. So they were planning to walk the seawall and then go to Miku, which is near Canada Place, so she could fill out that job application. But when he got to her place, Natsumi wasn't there.
0: According to friends, Natsumi would stop showing red receipts on her messaging app after 11 a.m. on September 8th. When Kogawa failed to respond to Manis' texts, He went to her house at Burnaby. He did not find her there. He walked back and forth between nearby Holdham Skytrain Station and her house, hoping to bump into her. When he did not see her, he texted, emailed, and called her. But he never heard back. Manus is quoted as saying, There were alarm bells going off at this point. It was unusual for her to not respond. It didn't feel right. It felt weird. He called Burnaby RCMP to report Kagawa missing the following Monday. Now, this delay in calling the RCMP is apparently because David went camping for the weekend and only realized she was still missing upon his return. Jay, the supposed boyfriend, had a similar experience with losing contact with her and trying to find her. Jay Vergara also called police to report her missing after Kagawa had not returned any of his texts or calls since they last communicated shortly after midnight on September 8th, 2016. Vergara would go to her Burnaby homestay on September 12, 2016 to try to find her. Jay would go on to say the following, I thought maybe she was sick. Something happened with her phone. I was panicking and I was knocking on her door.
1: So we have Natsumi Kogawa seen and communicating with people through the day on September 7th then on September 8th we have her not reading messages after 11 a.m. She then went on to miss a meeting with a friend at 6 30 p.m. on the 8th. So where is she between 11 a.m. and six thirty? is kind of like this the area that we're looking in. Now Natsumi was a busy and diligent student so sometimes she would buckle down and focus on um, but she would never blow off friends or not message people.
0: But it was was it normal for her to kind of go hours without responding because she was like busy studying?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if she had something heavy coming up, she was a good student. So she would focus. But
0: eventually somebody would get a reply.
1: Yeah. And according to her friends, she never exhibited any medical or emotional or mental health problems. She didn't take drugs um, prescribed or otherwise. Uh, She did drink a little bit of beer, but never vodka, apparently. So, on Monday, the 12th, Natsumi would be reported missing, and a large group of her friends and volunteers would mobilize on her behalf.
0: Natsumi's friends sprang into action. A Facebook group was launched to spread the word about her disappearance and provide a timeline of her last known activities. Friends and friends of friends went to places in downtown Vancouver where Natsumi often spent her time to hand out posters with her photo, pleading with strangers to call police if they recognized their friend. Her image appeared on screens at transit stations and was shared widely on social media. There was also extensive local media attention, as well as quite a bit of media from Japan covering the story of the missing woman. The Burnaby RCMP would take over the case, as that was where she lived. Burnaby is its own city, but it's also kind of a suburb of the metro Vancouver area, and since Natsumi was last seen there, the Burnaby detachment took the case. The investigation was pretty perplexing at first, as Natsumi doesn't have a risky victimology. A break in the case would come on September 27th, just 15 days after she was reported missing, when RCMP would release a still from CCTV footage in a downtown Vancouver mall.
1: So this still photo from CCTV footage was of Kogawa walking with an unknown male through the Harbor Center Mall in downtown Vancouver. And now this mall is like not like an epic. This isn't a mall. It's not like an epic mall mall. Uh, for shopping. It's more of either uh, a walkthrough if you're going to transit or mm-hmm. certain st- or it's also like kind of a lunch food fair place for people who work in offices upstairs. Yeah, And it also has a liquor store.
0: I think the important thing to know about Vancouver is because it rains so much, there's a lot of these underground kind of walkways for people to hide from the rain. And so these are like these underground kind of I wouldn't call them malls, but They're like just
1: places for us to hide out from the rain.
0: To get to different transit stations. Yeah, like a lot of
1: buildings are connected to each other through them.
0: Yeah, there's like an underground tunnelway that has different like liquor stores and fast food chains and stuff like that.
1: So the footage was date and time stamped September eighth, twenty sixteen at one thirty PM. So you'll recall that this was the last day any of her loved ones were able to get in contact with her. She stopped reading mm-hmm. messages after at eleven. 11. On that
0: day. So she had text messages waiting for her and she was alive. So she was just kind of not looking at her phone at this time.
1: Yeah. So naturally, the police immediately considered the male in the CCTV footage to be a person of interest. The man was described as a Caucasian, around 30 years old, medium height, wearing a dark blue jacket, blue jeans, running shoes, a dark baseball cap, carrying a black gym bag with red handles, as well as a duffel style backpack on his back. This lead would prove to be a pivotal moment in the investigation.
0: Let's get into this new lead after a quick break. And we are back. So the photo would be a huge break in the missing persons case, but sadly it would change the scope of the investigation into a criminal one. This is because around 8pm on Wednesday, September 28th, just one day after the photo was released, Vancouver police would make a gruesome discovery. The body of a woman in an advanced state of decomposition would be found stuffed in a suitcase on the grounds of the historic Gabriola Mansion in the downtown neighborhood of Vancouver's West End.
1: So just to give some context here, the West End is a very densely populated area with many, many apartment complexes. Like we covered in our Aaron Webster episode, the West End is a relatively safe and sought-after neighborhood. The Gabriola Mansion itself is a bit of an anomaly in the area it's one of the remaining turn-of-the-century buildings in the West End, and it now seems sort of out of place amongst all the urban density. The mansion has been a bunch of stuff over the years, including two or three restaurants, a film set for many productions, but recently it's been under construction to be townhomes.
0: Or it was supposed to. I don't know if construction ever started.
1: On yeah, that. it's had a blue fence around it for construction for years yeah. on and off, it like sounds like. Three yeah, years, it looks like, I think. Yeah.
0: yeah. In 2016, at the time of the discovery of the body in the suitcase, the grounds were completely closed for renovations. The frontage of the mansion is on Davy Street, which is a heavy pedestrian and transit area, and the back of the building, which faces an alley, is also a very heavily traveled area by West End residents.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, his kid goes to the local school there, and, and the kid's
0: walk up like that alley. get
1: walked up the alley in classes i'm talking little kids mm-hmm. like six seven eight year olds like it's a shortcut
0: i mean two of our friends live in an apartment building that literally backs onto that same alley yeah it has not been confirmed whether the suitcase and the body were found in the building or on the grounds but we will talk more about the suitcase later
1: now as we mentioned at the start of the episode the mansion is across the street from our vancouver apartment We were actually out enjoying a late summer walk when we came upon the crime scene. We stood there in disbelief with our neighbors as we watched the police close off the area. And we can say that there were lots of VPD members searching the grounds in a line formation. There was probably about 25 police officers Mm -hmm. there. There was also a forensics team on site. In fact, the search went on into the night and continued for the entirety of the next day. Mm -hmm. And having seen the Natsumi Kogawa stories on the news for the last couple of weeks and being, you know, true crime types, we thought the worst. And sadly, we were right. We, we both thought it was mm-hmm. Natsumi. Yeah, we knew. And the following day, the authorities would identify the remains as 30-year-old Natsumi Kogawa.
0: And on the very same day that her remains were identified, police would announce that they had taken a man into custody in Vernon, which is 442 kilometers away. He would be charged with indignity to a body. His name was William Victor Schneider.
1: So taking a look at the man police apprehended, William Victor Schneider, uh, would tell us that he was far from an upstanding citizen. William Schneider was of no fixed address and was well known to police. And, you know, we try our best to keep our personal opinions out of this uh, podcast, but, Mm -hmm. you know... This guy is a piece of shit. To quote the captain from True Crime Garage, (laughs) this guy's a piece of shit. Or a douche canoe. A douche
0: canoe, yeah. (laughs) So William, he was 49 at the time of his arrest, already had a very lengthy criminal record of, you know, 48 previous convictions that date back to 1985, including, but not limited to, armed robbery, robbery, theft under $5,000, possession of controlled substance, breach of probation, etc. A lot of the charges are indicative of someone who was living an addicted lifestyle. William Schneider was born in 1967 and grew up in Vernon, British Columbia. It seems as though William was always a bit off, and in 1992, William underwent a psychological assessment. Schneider was described as having, quote, inappropriate and chauvinistic attitudes towards women he was known to target Asian women especially because he found them quote easy to control now I'd like to preface the next part of this uh, episode as being particularly uh, difficult to talk about because it has to do with animal abuse it's only going to be about 20 seconds of information but if you're super sensitive to that kind of thing please skip forward So, Schneider showed he had a sadistic side even as an adolescent, according to a report conducted in the year 2000. The report details Schneider's recount of hunting a neighborhood cat when he was a teenager. It said he poured liquid cement on the cat from head to toe, lit it on fire, and then took bets with his friends about which direction the cat would run. Yeah. Piece of shit.
1: Piece of shit. So in a particular string of robberies committed by Schneider during the 90s, it was revealed that William would target businesses owned or run or operated by people of Japanese descent. It was around this time that William would meet his now estranged wife, who was also a Japanese woman. The two would have a son together, and eventually his wife and son would move to Japan, leaving him behind in Canada. Jeez, I wonder why. (laughs) So during this time, William would meet Natsumi. He was living at the Catholic Charities Men's Hostel in downtown Vancouver, and he was also heavily using the anti-anxiety medicine lorazepam from July 2016 up until the time of his arrest. And also, there are several other shelters that he's on record
0: Mm -hmm. in
1: staying at, at homeless shelters in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. Like, he has... He was a frequent flyer in the yeah. shelter system in Vancouver.
0: And also there's nothing wrong with lorazepam.
1: And there's nothing wrong with being houseless. Like, I mean, yeah. there's nothing wrong with being no fixed address. People need help mm-hmm. and they seek out shelters in the shelter system for that help. And that's great. I 100% believe in that. This guy has a lengthy criminal past. He abuses women. He abuses people. And animals. He abuses animals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he. I think that his no fixed address... Yes, it has to do with addiction, but it also has a lot to do with flying under the radar of being a person with forty-eight criminal offenses.
0: Yeah, and not ever learning from your convictions and your time in prison. Yeah. You know, he didn't. But really also,
1: he's like, it, it makes him hard to find by authorities if yeah. he's if he's staying NFA.
0: Yeah, totally. So in 2016, when uh, William and Natsumi were hanging out, and uh, Natsumi would unfortunately be murdered. William was also broke at this time, up until his welfare check was deposited into his checking account on September 21st. This was a week before Natsumi's body would be located. And on that morning at 6 a.m., William was already on a Greyhound bus to Kelowna, where his brother was residing, presumably to evade law enforcement. So like we mentioned before, just a week after he would go to Kelowna, William would be arrested on the charge of indignity to a body. On the same day that her body was found stuffed in the suitcase, he was apprehended in Vernon, B.C., drunk on a dirty mattress in a park.
1: Yeah. And I just want to hop in here. He was originally charged with indignity to a body. Mm-hmm. And I remember we were watching the news that la- that night mm-hmm. and I thought it was really odd. It was so weird. And so what I've been able to figure out is they, they didn't have the evidence to give him the full murder charge. Mm-hmm. So they needed to pick him up as fast as possible. And I credit the police for doing that. I mean, they, they knew that, they, that that charge would stick and then they could get the rest afterwards. They
0: also knew they had to get this guy off the streets.
1: Yeah, as soon as possible. Okay, so let's talk about what we know with regards to the timeline leading up to Schneider's arrest. So it would appear, like we said, that Schneider would flee to the Kelowna-Vernon area sometime after Nitsumi's death, as he had family ties in the area, including a brother, a half-brother, a half-sister, and his father. So this is what we know about his time in the Vernon area. After police posted a photo of the CCTV footage showing Kogawa and William walking together, Warren, his brother, Warren's daughter, contacted Warren to ask if it was Willie, quote-unquote that's what they called him, in the photo. Apparently, they all had their suspicions because when William got to town, he had told Warren and their half-brother Kevin that he, quote, had done something bad. Warren would call William at their father's home where he was staying and told him about the photo, and William hung up the phone right away without saying a word. Warren then drove to Vernon that night to spend some time with his brother William Schneider. So, during this meeting or hangout or whatever, William Schneider would say to his brother, quote, that it's true, referring to an article on the internet about Natsumi Kogawa. The brothers then spent the evening drinking together in the park and agreed to talk more the next day. The next morning, William Schneider bought some heroin, apparently with 50 bucks he took from his father, with the intention of committing suicide by overdosing. Warren, the brother, the brother, said that William told him where to find Kogawa's body in Vancouver so Warren could tell the police after William Schneider was dead.
0: In the Vernon Park while William injected the drugs, Warren stood nearby and secretly called 911 to report an overdose. But apparently the heroin wasn't high quality and didn't kill him. So William then borrowed Warren's phone and called his estranged wife who lived in Japan with their teen son. Warren described William as being calm. After the call around 11 a.m., the brothers walked to a liquor store to buy another bottle of vodka for William and another beer for Warren. William said he was going to buy some more heroin to try to kill himself, and the brothers said their goodbyes. Willie and I hugged as if we were hugging for the last time, he said, and I took some photos and I left. Their sister called Warren around noon and drove him to the police station.
1: So Warren said he sat and waited for three or four hours to talk to an officer he left for the occasional cigarette and wants to buy a bottle of sambuca which he drank outside the police station
0: he sambuca. said this it's yeah, a weird Samb- choice. yeah i
1: guess day drinking i guess i don't know want something sweet Oof. so he's quoted as saying quote i had a lot of stress going on what i had to say where the body was was very important so i stuck it out around 11:30 p.m. on september 28th 2016 Vernon RCMP went to Polson Park where Warren had left William 12 hours earlier and arrested an intoxicated William on a drunken disorderly complaint. So within hours after Warren went to the RCMP to tell the police where they could find Natsumi Kogawa's body, Vernon RCMP officers realized that the intoxicated man that they had brought in from Polson Park was the suspect the Vancouver police were looking for and William was arrested and charged then. Mm -hmm. So even though Warren had gone to the police and said, this is where you can find the body and my brother is involved, Mm -hmm. they didn't realize that they had the person in custody when they brought William in as just a drunken disorderly charge.
0: Even though they have his name and everything? Yeah. And it matches the name of the...
1: (laughs) Yeah, it took 12 hours for them to tie together. And I mean, I guess it's like... Come on, though. Yeah, but I guess it was maybe beat cops versus, um, you know, homicide detectives. I think that the time delay, the four hours that Warren waited at the police station, I think that had to do with RCMP making their way from Burnaby up to Vernon. Mm -hmm. So, yeah,
0: I think there's just a lot of times communication issues within precincts. But
1: yeah, yeah, I don't doubt that. So this is there's another piece I want to add in here that I just learned. Court documents have revealed that Schneider also faces a separate charge of attempted sexual assault dated on or about September 28th in Vernon.
0: That's the same day he was arrested, right?
1: Yeah. And the same day when Natsumi's body was found. Uh, The victim's name hasn't been revealed and the charge was sworn on January 31st, 2017. So he spent one day... Doing heroin and getting drunk and trying to commit suicide, then woke up the next day, did more heroin, got loaded in the park, and then at some point committed a sexual assault, then stayed in the park, got more loaded, got picked up on a drunken disorderly charge, brought to the police station, charged with indignity to a body eventually.
0: This guy just can't stay out of trouble.
1: He's a piece of shit.
0: So there are a few points here that we want to highlight. Schneider, like we previously mentioned, had a wife and kid who live in Japan. We were unable to identify or verify this through legal documents. And keep in mind that Schneider is a career criminal and liar, so much of what he offers is not easily trusted. We have no way of verifying if they were legally married, how old the kid is, or if the kid was his. We also don't know where they met or if they ever lived together. But we do know what his brother has said. Warren stated that Schneider had traveled to Japan in June and July of 2016 to visit his teenage son Ricky, and was upset that his estranged wife wouldn't return to Canada with their son or let the boy take his surname. So the trip to Japan did not go the way Schneider wanted. According to Warren, Schneider was, quote, sad and lost and didn't succeed in keeping a steady relationship with his son. So a week after returning from Japan, William moved into a men's hostel where he lived for the next six weeks, during which time he had met Natsumi Kagawa. I just want to add here that trips to Japan from Vancouver are not cheap. Flights are about $1,000, and the cost of living in Japan is high. It's unclear how a career criminal was able to travel internationally. We are not saying it didn't happen, but I'm not sure how true all of this is. Warren, the brother, also stated to police that he overheard Schneider confess to his alleged wife over the phone. Hearing only one side of the conversation, Warren heard Schneider say either, I killed her or I did it. This evidence was never presented to the jury.
1: So we should also add that Warren, the brother himself, has a pretty long criminal history, mostly for driving while impaired and petty theft charges. So yeah, it seems like a pretty addiction and crime entrenched family.
0: So William Schneider would end up confessing to the crime, sort of. He would be interrogated in a wide-ranging interview with police on October 18, 2016 at the North Fraser Pre-Trial Center. We will get into the interview later, but we need to talk about some interesting pre-trial motions by the defense.
1: So getting court documents on this case is challenging as there was a publication ban leading up to and during the trial. That does happen in Canada when there's a particularly gruesome crime like Paul Bernardo, Luca Magnata, or Willie Picton. So most of what we have put together is compiled from reporters from inside the courtroom rather than actual court documents. But we did uncover two motions by the defense. Before the trial, Schneider's lawyers filed two motions. On September 25th, 2018, the defense objected to the admission of a photograph as they deemed it to be prejudicial. This photograph is of the suitcase in which Natsumi Kogawa's body was found. The photograph shows Miss Kogawa's back covered with debris, twigs, and maggots. The Crown, or prosecution, asserts that the photograph in some way addresses what may or may not have happened between her death on September 8th and the time Miss Kogawa's body was placed in the suitcase. The Crown says, An inference can be drawn based on the evidence that Ms. Kogawa's body was placed in a suitcase on September 10th, 2016. The Crown submits that the amount of organic debris and twigs on her body provides some evidence from which it can be inferred that Ms. Kogawa's body was left under a hedge or in some dirty place for 48 hours.
0: So I've noticed that... uh I mean, the thought is, is that she was killed on September 8th. And they, they think here that she would have been placed in this suitcase in, on September 10th. Yeah. So why is there that two-day... Well, the,
1: yeah, I guess the idea is that maybe the maggots or the twigs and dirt imply a 48-hour period. So
0: she would have been sitting out long enough somewhere where flies would land on her lay eggs, which would then... Turned to maggots, maggots by
1: the time she was found, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I That part I don't get, but I guess that's what they were pushing for.
0: Okay.
1: So they're arguing that this evidence goes to the indignity of a body charge, not the murder charge. Mm-hmm. So, because they're still trying, they still have to prove that charge too. The judge would rule in favor of the defense on this motion though. And this is what the judge had to say. Quote, in my opinion, the photograph adds little in terms of probative value to the evidence that Ms. Kogawa's naked body was found in a suitcase with debris and twigs on it. Given the disturbing nature of the photograph, I am of the view that the prejudicial effect on the, of the photograph outweighs its limited probative value. As a result, it will not be admitted into evidence in this matter. So the second motion would revolve around the admissibility of several autopsy photos. The defense objected to the admission of the photographs on the basis that their prejudicial effect outweighs any probative value they have. So even though the Crown wants to use them to prove a crime, the defense says, sure, they might, but this is going to prejudice the jury.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so this is about to get very graphic, and we debated putting this particular detail into the episode. But to maintain the integrity of the episode, we are going to include this fact, so please skip ahead of like 10 seconds if you have to. The first photograph is of a cloth that was found in Kogawa's anus. The crown takes the position that the photograph is relevant to the issues of where the cloth came from and how it got to where it was placed and when. The crown says the photograph of the cloth supports the inference that it was ripped from some other fabric. The second photo was of Natsumi's eyes and mouth, which were in a state of decomposition. The crown says the photographs show the condition of the eyes and the mouth at the time of the autopsy. The photographs bear on the opinion of the coroner in that she could not find any indication of suffocation, i.e. small breaking of blood vessels in, in the facial area or in the whites of the eyes. The crown submits, that the photographs make it clear why the coroner was unable to determine whether there had been any indication due to the decomposition of the body, particularly in the eyes and the mouth. So basically they're saying that they know she was strangled, but they can't prove it due to the state of the body. Mm -hmm. The defense says the photographs are graphic in nature and do not add to the report. Ultimately, the judge would allow these photos into the trial, stating... While I agree the photographs are disturbing, it is in my opinion that the probative value of the photographs in understanding the expert evidence regarding the cause of death outweighs their prejudicial effect. Accordingly, the photographs will be admitted into evidence.
0: So let's get into the trial and where the case stands today after a quick break.
1: And we are back. So the trial would begin in September of 2018. William Schneider was facing a life sentence for second degree murder, as well as the extra charge of interfering with a human body. William would plead not guilty to both charges.
0: Yeah, so the first witness in the trial would be Sergeant Hoivick of Burnaby RCMP, who was the lead detective on the Kogawa missing person file. He testified that he went to the corner of Davy and Nicola, which is where the Gabriola mansion is, and the suitcase was found by a VPD canine. He opened it and says he saw a foot and a leg inside. As we mentioned before the break, the pathologist was not able to determine exactly how Natsumi died due to the advanced decomposition of her body. A toxicology report would reveal that two prescription medications were in her system at the time of her death zopoclone, a sleep aid, and lorazepam, an anti-anxiety medication that also has sedative effects. Again, due to the condition of the body, the amount of drugs in her system at the time of her death was not able to be determined. Defense would argue that the pathologist could not determine her cause of death and there was no DNA evidence linking Schneider to her death. They would go on to say that there is no proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Schneider had the intent to commit murder. The pathologist also took vaginal swabs as well as oral swabs during the autopsy and did not locate any male DNA on Natsumi's body. When Vancouver police interviewed Schneider, they only recorded with audio. There is no video recording of the interview. Jurors were played the audio recording of the interview between Schneider and the two investigators, one of them being Sergeant Smith. Twice during the interview, Sergeant Smith asked the accused, Why? Why Natsumi? Schneider would reply, There was no why. The jury also heard how the two initially met at the Vancouver Public Library and also went on a hiking day trip to Lynn Canyon. Schneider recalled Natsumi playing ukulele for him on their hike. He would say, We met and we continued to meet. Then something went heated and then went very wrong. He told police later in the interview that he had big anger issues years ago. Seven to ten days passed between their first and last appointments, he added. The officer asked whether those appointments were dates, to which Schneider answered yes. On their last date, Schneider said he had bought meth for the occasion, but Kogawa declined to take any and so neither of them did. Schneider told police during the interview that he didn't want to go into particulars, but did offer this. I shouldn't say this, but if I was burying someone, I was 100 meters from the ocean. So that's inferring that if he did it, he would have just thrown her in the ocean. Further along in the police recording, Schneider says he's not exactly sure how Kogawa died. Quote, I don't know if she died, if her heart went, or if it was her breath. I don't know. Upon hearing this, Natsumi's mother stood up and abruptly left the courtroom. Sergeant Smith, who was on the witness stand at the time, watched her leave and then obliged the Crown Prosecutor's request that he show the jury the gesture Schneider did while talking about the moment Kogawa died. Smith covered his mouth with his hand and pinched his nose. So as we mentioned earlier, Vancouver police failed to record this interrogation by video So unfortunately, there is no concrete proof that Schneider even did this hand gesture at all. Throughout the police interview, Schneider does not exactly confess to the crime. He does describe the moment she died, remorsefully calls Kogawa a victim, and says he does not want the matter to go to trial and drag on. The police officers repeatedly emphasize how much Kogawa's family wants closure. Schneider agrees, but says he needs more time. Quote, they will get a letter from me and a full confession as soon as possible, he said. As far as we know, in 2020, the family still has not received any such letter from Schneider.
1: Later in the recording, Schneider would say, quote, she's definitely a victim. This shouldn't have happened. The jury would then hear the officer ask, why did it happen? And then, after muffled crying noises... Schneider would say, what it is, is it's my fault. So the trial drew to a close. The jury was faced with a difficult decision. Did Schneider intentionally smother Natsumi Kogawa, put her in a suitcase, hide her remains behind a vacant building, flee the city, tell his brother where to find the body, and attempt suicide? Or... Were the two using prescription medication as well as alcohol, and Natsumi overshot her limit, died, and a panicked Schneider would go on to make some incredibly poor choices.
0: Yeah, so also, in a shocking revelation, just as the jury was set to deliberate Schneider's fate, he would change his plea to guilty when it came to the indignity to a corpse charge. This still left the jury with the decision on whether or not to convict William Victor Schneider of second degree murder.
1: So, after four days of deliberation, the jury would come back with their verdict. William Victor Schneider was found guilty of second degree murder and would be sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 14 years. He was also given three and a half years for the added charge of interfering with human remains. However, his sentences will be served concurrently,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it's not an added three and a half years. And it is com- like a life sentence in Canada is twenty five years, and it's very hard for people to not to be sentenced without a parole option. Yeah, it just happens that way. So Natsumi's mother would say that she hopes Schneider gets as long as possible in prison, hoping that he doesn't get out at that fourteen year mark. Mm-hmm. So you think that would hopefully bring this nightmare to a close for Nitsumi's friends and family, but no. In true psychopathic fashion, William Victor Schneider and his defense team have filed an appeal to attempt to get his murder charge overturned. While the media hasn't released any information around why he has decided to appeal, I'd hazard a guess that it has to do with uh, the point that little to no physical evidence actually ties him to murder. And it actually kind of points that it was more of an accidental death.
0: Yeah, he's going to really try to get off on the fact that there's no DNA or anything like that.
1: Yeah, and that it's on a confession and the confession is was...
0: Not recorded, yeah. on video, so...
1: And it looks like with that four-day deliberation that there was some kind of hiccup in there for the jury to have to sit on that for four days. I mean...
0: Well, I think there's no doubt in my mind that he did this. Mm-hmm. Like, I really think that he killed her out of a fit of rage yes Uh, he did or
1: some kind of perverse shit
0: yeah however there's not a lot of great evidence here and there is room for doubt so that's why I I personally think it took them four days to reach their decision yeah
1: I just know that if I was on that jury I would have been like guilty what are we ordering for lunch like you know like I, I wouldn't have to deliberate for four days on this guy
0: same but you know other people might feel differently So that appeal trial was supposed to have taken place earlier this year of 2020, but has been postponed until October due to COVID-19. I imagine it's likely going to get pushed back and delayed again.
1: So Natsumi's family and loved ones have spent four harrowing years dealing with this. First searching for her and eventually mourning her senseless murder. It's not a stretch to say that they are all forever changed and will be managing their way through this for a lifetime. Mm -hmm.
0: So we want to share uh, Natsumi's mother, Amiko's, letter to everyone who helped her or simply invested in her daughter's case.
1: Yeah, this was posted to the Find Natsumi Kagawa Facebook page. Yeah.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Amiko Kagawa, and I am Natsumi Kagawa's mother. I wanted to express from the bottom of my heart how thankful my family and I are to everyone. After Natsumi went missing in September, many people gave us an incredible amount of support. Countless people helped search for her, shared information on Facebook, sent us warm messages, prayed for Natsumi every day and even until today helped support us. Your support and your feelings have helped our family in such a difficult time. We regret that we were not able to tell everyone individually how much we appreciate your feelings and support. My family visited Vancouver at the beginning of October to bring Natsumi back to Japan. We held a private funeral in Vancouver, attended by family. After a long and difficult search, we were finally able to find Natsumi and bring her back home to Japan. In Japan, another memorial was held where family and many friends mourned and remembered Natsumi. Even though it was only a short four months, I came to find out that Natsumi had met many people and spent many happy days in a wonderful place like Canada. I really wish that Natsumi would have been able to continue living in Canada for much longer. When we came to Canada to bring Natsumi back home, we found lots of her thoughts and notes in her journal entries. We found her study notes, her future plans back in Japan, and entries on how she was involved with volunteering and many activities. In particular, we found her planner on her desk, and her last memo written on it was September 8th. It wrote that she woke up at 7am, started studying as usual, but there was nothing written after that. My heart hurts when I try to think about what happened and what she was thinking after this last journal entry. Natsumi was incredibly hardworking, and every day she made the most of her time in Canada. Knowing her, I'm sure she wishes that she could have done all the things she wanted to do in her time in Canada. Our entire family still feels like all of this is not real, and it's very difficult for us to accept that Natsumi is gone. This is an incredibly difficult time for us. Natsumi was the center of our family, and we gravitated around her like the sun. I sometimes imagine that all of a sudden Natsumi will show up out of nowhere like this was all one big joke. I'd imagine that she would make us smile and laugh like she always does. But it looks like this isn't the case. Our family misses Natsumi dearly and we wish she was with us right now. We'd like to thank everyone again for your support and prayers. Your thoughts and goodwill are precious to us and we are incredibly appreciative.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely just heartbreaking. Um, Part of my career was working with international students over the years and a big part of that is making sure that You're keeping them connected. You're keeping them safe. Mm -hmm. You're giving them advice on the city and stuff like that. And I know that as Vancouverites, we want Vancouver to be a safe place for people to come from all around the world to Mm -hmm. enjoy. Yeah. And so it just – this case has always broken my heart from from the day we saw the first report that she was missing. It just – there was something off about it. Mm -hmm. For sure. So this concludes this episode. Normally, we would point you in the direction of a GoFundMe or another way to help a family in pain. However, in Natsumi's case, there are no donations or petitions. I think in this instance, we just want to remind everyone to be careful when you're traveling or studying abroad. Always let a friend or a loved one know where you are going and who you are going with. Be careful who you spend your time alone with. As unfortunately, things like this do happen. And they happen to people who absolutely do not deserve it. And also look out for each other out there. If you, you know, if something doesn't feel right, say something.
0: Yeah, if you see something weird, if you hear something weird, no matter how small or insignificant you think it might be, try to remember it or even report it if, it, if you feel like it needs that. If you are enjoying our podcast, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to our podcast, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TNTCpod. We also have a Facebook page, and we'd love to have you on it. It's simply titled, True North, True Crime. We will see you in two weeks with a brand new episode, and until then, stay safe, everyone.
1: Stay safe, you guys.